Today we're going to continue through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 18, the second half of 18. So Acts 18, 18 is where we will begin. Uh, last week we, we had a, a pretty neat chapter introduced to some very important people in the book of Acts. We're going to talk a little bit, just a little bit more about them today. Um, Paul left Athens last week and ended up in Corinth, and there he met Aquila and Priscilla, and we'll talk a little bit about more, a little bit more about them today and their importance to Paul throughout the rest of his his ministry. Paul is going to see is going to, uh, to do a little more traveling here, and, and this is a transitional section a little bit as well. He's going to end his second missionary journey and actually begin the third in this little short section. Uh, last week, we were all kind of in one little city here. We're going to be all over the place, and so I'm going to try to do my, the best I can to show you as Paul travels where, he's, where he goes. So we picked the story up in Acts 18, 18, and it says this. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, but as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. He set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Antioch, of course, is his home church. So this is the end of his second missionary journey in this section. There's a lot to talk about, of course, as we go through it. So Paul had been in Corinth for some time. He left and went and sailed for Syria. But with him is Priscilla and Aquila. Now, if you remember, last week we were introduced to them in Acts 18, verse 1. And in Acts 18, verse 1, they are listed in which order? If you flip back in your page, or look back on your page. We're introduced to them as Aquila and his wife, Priscilla. What has happened here in 18... Verse 18. What's happened with the order of their names? That's not an accident. It tells us here in 1818 that it comes, it says Paul is going to be accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, her name being listed first. Now, this is extraordinarily rare in the ancient world for a woman's name to be listed before her husband's. If you have address labels at your house and you are married, what does it say? Does it say Mr. and Mrs. your last name? It's normal, right? That's pretty common. So for this to be for it to be this way, this isn't an accident. As Luke writes this book, this isn't he isn't just getting lazy and forgets which one is which, because the rest of the book of Acts is going to stay this way, where Priscilla's name is listed first and then followed by Aquila. This would only be the case in the ancient world if she was the leader. She was more prominent in this relationship. That's the only way we can figure out why this would be this way in the book of Acts. Where it started the normal way, Aquila and Priscilla, and here we have a change to Priscilla and Aquila. There's a good chance that she is the one who leads when it comes to the ministry of the church. She is the one who's out in front, and Aquila is the one following. I know that makes some of you uncomfortable. It's not my job to make you comfortable. It's my job to bring the Bible to you. If you don't like it, get over it. You'll be fine, right? If I hurt your feelings, your feelings will mend, right? The next day, it'll, you'll all, it'll be okay, okay? So we're going to talk a little bit today about the role of women in the church and how the church, I think, men in the church have sometimes viewed it in an inaccurate way. Throughout the scriptures, we have seen women lead. 
you don't believe me, go read your Old Testament. There's a woman named Deborah who is a judge in the Old Testament. What did judges do in the Old Testament before there were kings and queens in Israel? They led. They were leaders. God's people have always looked to people who have leadership ability regardless of their gender. Regardless if they're men or women, if you can lead, lead, right? If you have that ability, do it, lead. Now, of course, in the ancient world, it was extraordinarily rare for women to lead because they they lived in an actual patriarchal society. I know some people pretend like ours is, but that's just, that's rainbows and puppies and all, that's just a weird thing. They lived in an actual patriarchal society where men ruled, where women weren't allowed to divorce their husbands, where women didn't own property, and I could stand up here for 15 more minutes and list the things that women were not able to do in the ancient world. And so for her name to be listed first is not an accident, and it's telling us something about this new community of believers, that when God gifts someone to do something, he gifts them regardless of whatever, ethnicity and gender, the color of their skin. When God asks people to lead and they have the ability to lead, he says, go and do it. If you remember the resurrection story, the first person to to proclaim the good news that Jesus has risen was not one of his male disciples. They were too busy hiding. The resurrection story tells us who is the first person to go tell those male disciples who are hiding that Jesus has risen. Her name was, was Mary. The Bible points to us constantly of people who are able to lead to just lead. And we'll talk a little bit more about this at the end of this section as well, as you're going to see Priscilla take on a leadership role in something that she never should have taken on that role in in her world. Paul leaves them in Ephesus. Ephesus is an important city. Ephesus had the population of roughly 100,000 to 200,000 people at this time. It is the, uh, the most prominent city in Asia Minor, and so he's going to leave them there to take on the ministry and help build and strengthen the church. Paul is asked, of course, to spend some more time there. He declines because he's trying to get back to, to, to his home base. And so he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. So when he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And like I told you earlier, that's the end of the second missionary journey. He's back in Antioch, which is his home church. Now in there, it talked about him cutting his hair as well. In verse 18, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Caesarea because of a vow he had taken. We're not sure what that vow was. If you want more information on that, flip to your Old Testament to Numbers chapter 6. It was probably a temporary Nazarite vow where at the end of the vow, you shaved your head. As a, as a, symbolizing, of course, like a clean start. We don't know what the vow was, right? The, the details are very vague. Luke just kind of mentions it and goes on. So I'm not going to speculate on what, he was, what the vow he was taking. But if you want more information on how those vows worked for Jewish people, Numbers chapter 6 is a great place for you to look. We continue in the story to verse 23, which is the beginning, will be the beginning of his third and final mission, well, shouldn't say final, third and final missionary journey that is recorded in the book of Acts. It starts in Acts 18, verse 23. Before we get there, I want to show you where he had traveled from. So he was over in Corinth. He cuts his hair off in Censorea. He makes his way to Ephesus, and then is going to make his way all the way here, down and into Jerusalem, down here, the Caesarea, land Caesarea to Jerusalem, and he's going to make his way up to Antioch, which is his home church. And so now we're going to see the beginning of the third missionary journey, which is going to be on foot. He's going to make his way up to these cities he'd already been to, and then he's actually going to make his way back, back to Ephesus. That's where we're, we're going to see in the beginning of this, of this third missionary journey. Verse 23 says this, After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Perga, 
strengthening all the disciples, the places he had been in his first and second missionary journey. He goes back to those same churches that he had helped start, trying to strengthen and encourage them, right? Help them along in their walk. While he's doing that, we hear this story in verse 24 through 26. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So we have this man who's just introduced to us named Apollos. Now we're told he's a Jewish man. So to have the name Apollos probably means he has his identity both as a Jewish person and as, as, a, as a Greek, right? The Apollos is not a Jewish name. And so we're not sure if he's, if he's like Paul or he holds both Roman citizenship as a Jewish person, which of course would give him more, more clout in the Roman world. What we do know about him is he's a native of Alexandria. Now, you probably know where Alexandria is, but just in case, I'm going to show you anyways. Alexandria is right down here. Now, it holds great, great importance to Jewish people, not be, just because Alexandria was a great place of learning, of education. Right, so, where Paul had grown up over here in Tarsus, remember Tarsus, Athens, Alexandria, all these three places are places of, of, of higher learning. We would, we would kind of ref- reference them as university towns, right? There, if you, went, if you grew up in that place, you were exposed to, to, ed- to a great education, to being able to speak, to rhetoric, and to philosophy. Those were the, kind of the centers of the, of the education at that time. And so from Alexandria, we know he probably has a fairly good uh, education. Also, for the Jewish people, Alexandria is vitally important because where did the Israelites live when they were, when they were enslaved in Egypt? What land, when, when Joseph came, where, what land were they given? They were given this delta region here between these rivers, which is a very fertile, fertile place. So Alexandria held a special place in the Jewish people's heart because their story of Exodus, of being, of being taken to Egypt, migrating there because they had to, and then being enslaved and then freed, happens in this, in this area of the world. So they have deep, deep history in this area. So what we know is Apollos is from there. He's able to speak uh, probably very well, and is able to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah because of his great knowledge of the Scripture, we learn in verse 24. He knew only John's baptism, though. And so that, of course, is a baptism of repentance, right? And so what happens is Priscilla and Aquila hear him in the synagogue or in the street, probably in the synagogue because they're Jewish people themselves, and they invite him to their home. And it says to us, and the words at first seem kind of plain, and no big deal. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, I can't stress to you enough that how, how big this is in the world that they lived in. That not just Aquila is the one instructing him, but what does it say? They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Priscilla's name is Listed first, probably because she's the leader of this relationship, and what is she probably doing with Apollos in her home? She's teaching him. And the hang-up of the church for a very, very long time was that women didn't, didn't and shouldn't teach men. And the church hung up on that for a very, very long time. If you don't believe me, ask anybody over the age 60 in this room, and they will tell you that they probably at one point have been to a church where Women weren't allowed to get up here and speak. 
I think people who believe that skip this part. We all do it. I mean, we can pretend like we don't, but when the Bible confronts something that we have a, a preconceived notion about, we choose to just look the other way for a little while and keep reading. Like, let's not, we all, we've all done it before. Like, oh, that's hard. I'd rather not do that. Let's pretend I didn't read that and skip to the next chapter. What we do is we find things we believe in and then we go back to the Bible to prove it and that's a terrible way of living our life. Our, our goal as Christians is to open the Bible up and let it influence us. That's it. Take all of our preconceived notions, everything we've ever believed about whatever, the traditions that we hold, which is often what gets in our way, is I've, we've always done it this way. This is how it's always been. This is how I grew up and this is how I'm comfortable. Well, God is not worried about how you have always done it or how it's always been or about your or my comfort. God tells us to open the book and to wrestle with it and to learn from it. And what we see here is Priscilla is teaching Apollos the way of Jesus more adequately. Aquila might be helping, but her name's listed first for a reason. That's not an accident. And so for so long, we held in the church, well, women shouldn't do this and women shouldn't do that. No, if women are gifted in that, let them do it. Because just because you're a man and you're not gifted in it, it probably means you should sit down. It doesn't give you a right to speak just because the gender you were born with, you had no control over that, by the way. Right? You couldn't help that. What we have is we have to look at our traditions and go, do our traditions match Scripture? And when they don't, we need to get rid of those traditions they're just not valid anymore. And for this to happen in the world that they lived in was unheard of. Should have never ever happened. I've heard stories, horror stories of churches who have let women do things and men in those churches respond terribly to it. And, and, and it just breaks your heart every time thinking to yourself, what makes you so much better than them? And the answer is Nothing. The Apostle Paul is the man who writes, there is no more male or female, slave or free, for we are all one in Christ. But who you used to be doesn't really matter anymore. It doesn't mean that you have gifts that are different. She has gifts that are different than your gifts and he has gifts that are different. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is if you have the gift in this to do something and you can do it for God, do it. Do it. And if you look at the Bible through a certain lens, break that lens. Because it probably isn't the way God intended it to be. Open it up and let the Scripture influence you, not the other way around. Don't do your best to influence the Scripture. Let the Scripture work on you. What we have here is something neat and something different and something that is pointed to throughout all of Scripture if you pay attention to it. If you choose to ignore it, then you don't see it. This section ends in a pretty neat way as well. It says, when Apollos wanted to go to Acacia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scripture that Jesus was the Messiah. Apollos is gifted like Paul in the ability to speak and debate. And he's able to do that everywhere he goes. And what I want to point out is in verse 28, how did he do it? For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from his own great ideas, from his wonderful education, from how smart he was. No. Proving from the book. 
proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. What did Apollos do? Didn't lean on his great education, didn't go to the Greek philosophy he understood, didn't go to the writers of everywhere else. How are you going to prove that Jesus is who he says he is? What did he do? He opened the book. Exactly what we just talked about, right? We let the book influence us, not us influence the book. And so what he do is he opens up the book. He proved to them from the book that Jesus is the Messiah. Now if you're going to talk with Jewish people about, the, about this Jesus Messiah, where would you go? Of course you'd go to the book. So he's able, because of his knowledge of this book, of the Bible, just the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament then, right, as the New Testament's being written, he takes the book and he shows to them, hey, this is who Jesus is. This is the word that had come thousands of years before he came, predicting that this is how he would be. This is where he would be born. This is how he would be born. This is how he would live. This is how he would, would die. So he doesn't go to his own ideas and his own philosophy and his own intelligence. He goes back to the book. And for us to do the same, now you've heard me say it a thousand times before, but for us to do, do the same, we got to know the book. Got to know it. My ideas aren't all that great. They're my ideas. Trust me, I know them. Your ideas, maybe they're better than mine, but they're still not nearly as good as God's ideas. His have always been and will always be the best. And so for us to know those ideas, though, you have to... Right? Kick the dust off of her and open her up. If I say something like, I'm not sure that Lyndon's right. I've been wrong before. Open the book and see, right? It's, it's happened. Trust me. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll tell you. Just once or twice I've been wrong. That's all. Today. You've got to know the book. Don't take my word for it. Don't take that TV preacher who's sweating and spitting. And, right? Don't, don't take your neighbor's word for it. You've got the book. You have the book in more ways than anybody throughout history has ever had it. Not only do you have the book here, but you can turn on the radio, and you can turn on the TV, and you can get your smartphone out, and you've got the book everywhere you go. And so if you want to live by the book, you've got to open, open the book and wrestle with it. And, study. and it's a book like no other book. I've read lots of books. This one you keep coming back to going, every time I open it up, I find something new. God reveals something else and that, that seems to, to hit me right where I am, right in that moment, and God reveals it to me. And I've skipped over it a hundred times, and all of a sudden that verse is exactly what I need. There's no book like it. The greatest book ever written. It influences our hearts and our souls like nothing else can. So if you do nothing else, you take nothing else from today, please go home and open the book. Anywhere, just open it and start reading. Now, some parts are going to be a little more exciting than others, and some parts are going to be a little more difficult, but there's stuff in, in Leviticus, which is a hard book to get through. There's all kinds of stuff there, if you dig, that reveals to you that this, this Jesus is who he says he is, that God had a plan from the very beginning. No matter how exciting the book is or, or how, how it may seem unexciting, it will reveal more to you every time you open it. What we see Apollos doing, what Paul does, what all those who are trying to convince people in their world that this Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Savior of the world, the Messiah who has been waited for, every time they get to it, what do they do? It's the book. 
keep coming back to the book. So if you don't take my word for it, look at it. And they're able to convince people one after another that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has redeemed us, that he has bought us back with a heavy, heavy price, that he has always and will always love us more than we could possibly deserve. His grace is unending. His compassion is, is uncomprehensible. It, it can't, can't grasp it. Why he would continue to love a people who turn their backs on him time and time again, which is that not the story of the book? What's the story of the Old Testament? God forms these people through Abraham, and those people, sure enough, fail him time and time and time again. And they'll get their act together for a little while, and then some other leader comes, and they fall away, and someone leads a reform. I'm just, this is a spoiler alert. This is the Old Testament for you, right? I mean, you should read it yourself, but this is the story of it. God's people continually being unfaithful. They'll be faithful for a little while, and then they fall away. And then for another, maybe for a little longer the next time, and they fall away. Then a little shorter the next time, and they fall away that time again. And God continues to pursue and chase after them because of his great love. He proved all that in the person of Jesus, who was faithful always, who never failed, and yet suffered for those of us who fail constantly. He was always faithful so that us, the unfaithful, might be brought back to a relationship with our God. The book is a story of God's endless pursuit of us. His endless and untiring love of the unlovable. And so we come here today to offer him back our praise. Because the book tells us that's all we have to offer him. Our hands are empty. All we can give him back is just a little piece of the glory he bestows upon us through his son Jesus. And so we gather here to sing songs and take communion and to give back a little bit of what we have and to, to, to open up the book and read it because we're just so grateful for all he's done for us. And that's what Apollos is teaching as he goes about. Oh, man, your response to God should be one of great love because that's what his response has always been to you. One of great love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for this, this section of scripture as we see Paul's second missionary journey come to an end and his, begin his third and, and others join him in this pursuit of bringing your good news to all the world. Father, we are so thankful that they were faithful to you in every way. That people like Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila were willing to risk their lives to take this gospel all around the world so that people like us, nearly 2,000 years later, might also have this word preserved for us and given to us by you. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us and all that you do for us. And, and we're so grateful for the book and we ask that you would help us as we open it up throughout the week as we wrestle with it, as we try to let it influence our lives. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us in that effort to learn from it, to take from it. Father, help us to take our preconceived notions, our, our traditions, and throw them aside and just return to the book. To open it up and to learn from it and figure out how we might apply it today. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us through his death and burial and resurrection. It's in his powerful name we pray and all God's people said. Amen.